0: Welcome to the Engineering Influence podcast presented by the American Council of Engineering Companies. A big issue for every type of company in the United States today is cybersecurity. It's a huge challenge both to protect a a firm's digital assets and then to stay ahead of the bad actors who never stop looking for chinks in the armor. We're going to dive into this issue with Doug Miller, who is founder and CEO of the Brightworks Group in Indianapolis. Brightworks is a digital transformation and cloud transition IT service company, offering cloud-based managed services to companies in a range of industries, including engineering. Doug recently presented an online class for ACEC on cybersecurity, and if our conversation stimulates your interest, I encourage you to download the program. We'll put a link in the show notes. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. So for a long time, cybersecurity has been the smart thing to do, um, that, you know, that firms should do it. Um, but recently, and based on your, uh, on your program, it's now almost becoming that you have to do it either for insurance or for comp- compliance. Where, where yes. are we on that?
1: Yeah, it, it, you're exactly right. Um, you know, for years, it's been a good idea. Um, when we started our firm 10 years ago, one of the, the focuses we had uh, and have had for years has been on companies that are subject to some kind of compliance. And, and one of the reasons for that is they kind of have a gun to their head, right? They, they have to do this stuff, which obviously just makes it easier for us to sell things to them, right? To sell our services. Um but there have been a lot of companies that weren't subject to compliance. And and so often it's been difficult to kind of get them convinced that they might need to to do this. Well, in the last two or three years, that's really started to change. And and the big driver has really been insurance. Uh, As more and more companies were hit with cybersecurity incidents, and there were larger and larger insurance payouts, I think we all remember Sony and Home Depot and, you know, some of those very Anthem uh, right here in, in Indiana, you know, some of those were very large, uh, multiple tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, we've seen several high profile ones. You may, may remember the, the pipeline incident that happened on the East coast last year. Um which which had not just an impact in terms of that company itself, but actually raised gas prices for a while. And insurance companies have looked at that and said, you know, the losses are just too extreme. We we can't have a company like that pipeline company who simply hadn't done anything, right? They had taken no steps to prevent an incident and it was extremely costly. So insurance companies, even for small businesses now, are are getting pretty uh, aggressive about getting cybersecurity uh, steps in place for their customers or they simply won't provide the insurance.
0: I would imagine that, I mean, we hear about these large ones, but I would imagine there's lots of small ones we never hear about because the company just doesn't want to put it out there. Exactly.
1: Um, there, there are even, frankly, some large ones we don't hear about. Um, there's some uh, some regulation being discussed right now to require companies to do reporting uh, so that we get a better sense of it. But certainly, as we look at smaller and, and mid-sized businesses, um, it's very common that, that we hear about or encounter companies that have had some sort of smaller incident. It might be a phishing incident. Um, In fact, that's what most of them are. Um, It might be a situation where they they ended up uh, with some files encrypted. uh, And and hopefully it's not a business ending situation, but they don't report it. They certainly don't want their customers to know about it so yeah there there are literally thousands of incidents that you don't hear about
0: and I, one reason why i would imagine um, that firms don't address this issue is it it just feels it's not really in their wheelhouse it feels big um, you just always feel like you're behind the bad the bad guys always going to be one step ahead of you i mean do you do you encounter this sort of mindset when you're talking <clears throat> to people i think there are really
1: sort of two drivers for why firms kind of don't do anything about it, that, that we've seen again over several years. Um, and one definitely is what you've just described, right? It's the, I don't really know where to start. We're an engineering company, right? We, we might know a lot about uh, civil engineering or traffic management or those kinds of things, but we don't know anything about this. And so we, don't, we kind of don't know where to start and we don't even know how to evaluate getting somebody to help us, right? We we don't know the questions to ask. And so they're in a little bit of analysis paralysis, right? I mean, um, I love engineers to death. I'm an engineer, but you know, one thing about us engineers is that if we're lacking data, it can be really hard to make a decision. (laughs) And so, you know, you'll get that situation where where they just don't know, so they won't do anything. Um, The other side of it, though, uh, that's often been out there has been, and this is kind of a problem with the security industry, is that Often the solution in many cases has been more expensive than the problem. That firms look at what they might have to spend to implement effective cybersecurity versus what they might pay if they have to deal with ransomware, for example. And they do the math and they say, look, you know, we'll roll the dice. Because, you know, if we've, got to, if we've got to pay two or three or or even $10,000, that might be less expensive than what we would have to pay for cybersecurity. Now, there's sort of two problems with that. Number one, that the costs of the breaches are going up. They're becoming a lot more expensive, Right. And and that approach also ignores a lot of the the things that happen around a breach, the reputational damage, for example, um, the fact that you may have intellectual property that is now exposed to the world, right? Um, the fact that employee data, personal information, may be uh, not just exposed, but being sold on the dark web, right? And now your employees are having to worry about are their identities being stolen, things like that. So that, that equation never made a lot of sense actually, but you can see how somebody might make that decision if they're just looking at the surface.
0: And they're also just assuming it's it's a one-time thing. I would imagine that if you've hit once you're gonna get hit again and again and again. Once someone knows you're vulnerable.
1: About 80% of the businesses that get hit, get hit a second time within six to eight months. So you're absolutely right. Um, if for no other reason than once they get in, they often leave stuff behind, making it easier for them to get in a second time. So even if you, you say, okay, well, I'm gonna try and secure things, I'm, I'm now gonna do stuff. You've got kind of a ticking time bomb in the door, right? It, it's a problem. So you really don't want to be set up that way. You want to take the steps and it's that kind of stuff that the insurance carriers are reacting to is, you know, okay. Um, we're going to make it so expensive for you. If you don't take steps. That it's no longer, that equation is no longer attractive to people.
0: Which makes sense. Um, the, uh, I guess, sort of a, 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 uh, a mitigating factor over the past two years has been the fact that so many of us are working from home, and I, have, I know in my case I don't have any uh, stuff in my my home to protect myself against cybersecurity for cybersecurity. I mean, is that an issue for firms just looking around, saying all of our employees are home anyway? Uh, it, it's been a huge issue
1: um, that it's actually created vulnerabilities that that didn't exist before, right? You're right. People went home. They're working remotely. Um, They are using, in many cases, their home computers on their home networks, right? And they don't have the protections that they might have in a corporate environment. Um, And this isn't really going to change, even when companies go back to their offices. One of the the spinoffs of this last couple of years is a realization that people can work remotely all the time, right? And so we, we certainly are seeing companies that are having a lot more remote workers. There's a lot more mobility as people work from different locations and frankly this has always been for for engineering this has always been a thing right while you have uh perhaps a lot of engineers who work in an office because they're they're you know they need large CAD workstations or whatever you also have a lot of people that are on job sites so they are out in the field working remotely This has been a thing that engineering has kind of had to deal with regardless, but it's become more complicated because they have people working at home now that they didn't before. Um, We're seeing it all over the place and have for the last two years. Um, A big part of our approach has, again, for the last 10 years, has always been that, that we want companies, we want our customers to design their environments so that their people can work safely from anywhere, right? It may be that 90% of their people work 90% of the time in the office, but if we've designed their environment, if we've designed the infrastructure and the security measures and their approach to computing in such a way that anybody in that group can end up working from anywhere and still be secure, then a situation like what's happened in the last two years becomes trivial. Right. And and that was actually what happened. Most of our customers at the beginning of COVID simply went home. They didn't spend a lot of, there there was no transition time period because they were already set up to deal with this. Right. And, And when you stop and think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If, I need to take special precautions because an important staff member maybe is going on a working vacation, then I'm likely to not take those steps in that, that specific instance. But if I've designed the whole thing to work that way all the time, if that's just by default, then I don't have to worry about it.
0: Right. Yeah. You, um, uh, in your program for us for ACEC, you do I think it was called nine steps you can take. Yes. I, I thought a couple of them were uh uh were worthy of, of, of focus. And uh which you know so much is on our own personal uh lives. And and in my banking, I I encounter SMS all the time.
1: Yes, um,
0: and and you may you you said it. It's not really that, that effective as a you, you differentiate between SMS and multi-factor authentication. Can you go into that a little? Sure, sure. I, I mean,
1: years ago, uh, so first of all, let's talk about multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is when you need to have some factor other than just a password to authenticate to an account. All right. Now, that second factor can take all kinds of forms, it can be lots of different things. One of the most common ways to do that over the last few years is when you get a code texted to your phone, right? And most, uh, particularly most financial services, your your online banking, right, uses this all the time. Um, The unfortunate reality of SMS is that while it's better than doing nothing, it's considerably better than doing nothing. Um, SMS is the most vulnerable second factor out there. Um, It can easily be spoofed. Um, There are many ways that a bad actor can cause you to to, uh, send them your SMS code or can intercept that code when it's sent to you. Um, They can get control over your phone. Uh, We recently had a, uh, not one of our customers, but a friend of the company who had uh, about six weeks before attended one of my sessions, similar to what I did for ACEC about cybersecurity, who got his phone spoofed. Uh, He unfortunately didn't implement the things that I told him to do and got his phone SIM spoofed. And then all of the the SMS multi-factor codes that he was sent for all of his accounts got intercepted. And he literally everything, I mean, his bank account, all of his his email was taken over, um, it was extremely disruptive.
0: That's to, terrifying. Uh, business.
1: Yeah, it, it was it was bad. Um, and I, I still don't know. It's been about four or five months. I still don't know that he has everything sorted out. Um, so we recommend that, that, you know, anytime that you have the opportunity to upgrade your multi-factor away from SMS, do it. Um, number one you should be using multi-factor on everything you can use it on and number two if you have a choice not to use sms but to use a different kind of multi-factor authentication that's more secure definitely upgrade from sms the unfortunate reality is that particularly for things like online banking they're going to default to the least common denominator right they are a retail banks are dealing with tens of thousands of customers hundreds of thousands millions if you're somebody like chase or or somebody like that and you're going to use sms right it just it is the reality so we're kind of stuck with that but on things like your your personal email accounts your, your work email accounts other things you have to authenticate to um even amazon right i do this on amazon Uh, I have multi-factor in place, and it's not SMS. Um, Use a different kind of factor. Um, There are authenticator programs, little apps that you can get that you can run on your phone. uh, Even if the, the, the SIM swap has been done so that an attacker takes over your phone, because those codes are generated on the phone and not being sent to you, the attacker can't intercept them. Um, The best thing to use is a hardware token. Um, A couple of places make them, uh, Yubico is a manufacturer, Google makes them. And they're just little devices that you plug into the computer that require you to touch them. There's no way that an attacker can intercept that, right? right. Um, and yeah, I get it. It's it's a thing that adds a step to the authentication process and nobody likes that, right? It, it slows things down, but it's kind of like we were talking about at the beginning of, of this call when you and I first got on, right, about COVID. It's just one of those things that's out there right now and kind of have to do it.
0: Now it would seem to me that those tokens would be a good solution for working at home. They're
1: great. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm literally sitting here with one plugged into the computer right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's one of the things that we do as a company. Everything is protected by one of these tokens. All of our accounts, everywhere, we operate in a what's called a zero trust environment. Um, you have to be authenticated each and every time you connect to a resource So yeah, throughout the day, I'm reaching over and touching this little spot on this authenticator half a dozen times a day. It takes a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. But I I know that nobody is going to be able to get in. And they're not very costly. They're easy to distribute to employees. Um, They're easy to manage. They're technically... I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've put mine through the wash, right? If you, you forget that it's in a pocket, you throw your pants in the, the laundry and it, it gets washed and they don't die, right? They're, they're very durable. So it's a great solution. They're not, as I said, terribly expensive. They're very easy to implement. So I, I recommend that to everybody. Uh, again, the, the manufacturers are Ubico. um, and Google both have them. Uh, we tend to lean towards Ubico, uh, just because I think the implementation is
0: better. But either way it works. One 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 thing I would imagine that at every company at this point does is is does <laughs> is backups, um, regular backups of all their digital assets. But again, you you make the point that you can think you're doing a good job, but it's not really, you're not really doing what you need to do.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I kind of got my start in the backup world. Um, I've spent a lot of time over the last 30 years dealing with backup and disaster recovery. And the first thing I would say is y- you, actually would probably be surprised at the number of companies who still aren't doing backups. Oh, okay. Stand um, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's a little disconcerting, Um uh, the number of companies who who still can't quite get their head around the idea that, you know, you really seriously need to attend to this. Unfortunately, a lot of the ones who do and have, you know, are doing backups really aren't doing it very effectively. Um. It seems like every time that I talk to a group I I get a question from somebody about well we have an external USB drive and we back up to that and we try and take those external USB drives off site is that good enough no and everybody's always shocked because that's just that's my answer right I just say no Uh, it's that blunt that is not a good backup regimen. That will fail you for a whole host of reasons. To begin with, any backup system that you have that depends on human intervention is going to fail. Not might, not possibly, it will fail. You will forget to do it, you will put it off longer than you thought you have, You won't conduct the backups correctly. The device will fail. There are just too many ways for that approach and that system to not deliver. An external USB drive plugged into your computer that that you are manually copying stuff to doesn't work. So don't think you're doing backups if that's your solution, right? And and again, with people going home, that's often what people have ended up doing, right? Is they think they got something like that. Or they're using Apple's Time Machine, right? Maybe they've got a Mac and they've got it set up and they're, they're using Time Machine. It, it just isn't reliable, okay? And the the time to find out that it wasn't reliable is not when you need it. But that's when we find out, right? Because you don't, you don't reach for it. You don't test it. You don't check it out until you need it. And then you go reach for it and it's no good. That's a really, really bad feeling to have, right? That's, that's not the place you want to be. Backup systems need to be automatic. They need to run reliably by themselves. They need to be monitored. If they report an error, that has to be addressed immediately, right? Uh, And then there has to be frequent testing again, the time to find out that your backups aren't reliable is not when you need to restore something. It's when you're doing a test and you notice, Hey, I can't restore everything. Boy, I'm glad I found that out now. Right. Right. Um, Cloud-based backups are really what we recommend these days Uh, on the Personal side, there's a a variety of solutions, carbonite, um, other stuff, right? Using cloud based storage like OneDrive, uh, Dropbox, Box, etc., are good solutions. But it's important to realize, and many people don't that those services don't keep deleted files in perpetuity. In fact, most of them keep deleted files for a very short period of time, usually no longer than 30 days. Uh, Typically somebody won't realize that they have inadvertently deleted or lost a file from something like OneDrive. Often for months after the event, and they say, "Oh, well, it's you know, it's in the cloud, right? Somehow that's magic." Keep in mind, all cloud means is that it's somebody else's computer, someplace that you don't know where it is. That's all that means, right? And so they they go, "Well, you know, it's in the cloud. I should be able to get it back." And no, because Microsoft cycled that backup months ago. So even when you're using something like a OneDrive or a Box or Dropbox, you actually need a backup for those two, right? You need a cloud-to-cloud backup solution. But again, your monitoring that is providing somebody with daily telemetry that says, hey, everything's good, right? And you need at least... A couple of times a year to actually test it. it. It's, I get it. Again, it's not something that we're used to doing. It can be kind of a pain, but it's a hell of a lot less of a pain to do that than it is to get ransomware, figure that you're going to save your company by restoring a backup, and then not having a good backup.
0: Right. Yeah. The test, um, so many of these recommendations um, you know are so um, obvious and practical, but I can see a like a a small firm you know a few people half a dozen people looking at this and going we we just can't do that what 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 do you say to people in a small firm about you know about multifactor authentication uh, you know regularly testing backups
1: in those situations i the first thing I would recommend is, again, although it's going to cost a little bit of money, partner with an IT provider who's good at this stuff and get somebody responsible for it. it again, if all you do is, is those couple of things that you talked about, do that. And, and the, the challenge for the small firm is often that they, they have somebody inside the company, Uh, engineering is is, uh, very, this is classic, right? They've got that that CAD guy who feels kind of comfortable around computers. And so they're gonna make that person responsible for this stuff. But that person has a job, right? They're, They're probably billable. And if it comes down to doing the billable thing versus checking the backups, are going to do the billable thing and they should, right? It, it makes sense. So don't get lured into that trap. Uh, you may have to start out that way. I get it, but keep a close eye on that and realize that you're going to outgrow that fairly quickly. the The fortunate thing today is that more and more, particularly the backup systems, for example, more and more of, of, of those are available online as a service, right? And, and that's a good way to start out, right? Get, get everybody using Office 365 and OneDrive to begin with, right? Or something of that nature. Uh, for engineering firms, uh, a good alternative that's very engineering oriented has been 360 from Autodesk, right? get all your stuff up into the cloud, get all your storage up into the cloud. That alone is a huge, a huge part of this, right? Just doing that. Uh, I had a situation maybe three years ago where I walked into the office one morning, obviously pre COVID, because we were still going into the office and, uh, set my computer down, went and got a cup of coffee, walked back and poured the entire cup of coffee into my Dell XPS 15. Whole cup. It was fried, right? I mean, it was done. Uh, I ran down to Best Buy. I picked up a new machine. I brought it back. And in 30 minutes, I was completely functional again. Completely functional. I had everything I needed to work. And that was because I'm using a whole set of, you know, all my storage is online. All my stuff is up in the cloud. All my accounts are managed through multi-factor authentication using identity providers like Okta and things like that. The kind of stuff I recommended in, in the course. And so it was pretty easy to just log back into stuff and and have everything repopulate right it it wasn't difficult find somebody who can help you at least you know right if you don't want to to pay for a managed service but find somebody who can help you get that stuff set up and that you can maybe have check in with you a couple times a year
0: yeah I, i i would agree that i mean the key is is Having someone responsible for it. I mean, your your point, of course, is that if someone has to has billable hours, they're going to go that way. But that's that's a correction you need to make in the company because if no one's respons- if you don't have someone responsible for it, no one's going to do it. That's right.
1: That's right. It's got to be somebody's job. Right. And and it has to be a serious part of their job, not as a an afterthought. Um I always make the comparison to physical security, right? I mean, if you're in the office and everybody walks out of the office at the end of the day and nobody's responsible for locking the doors and turning on the alarm, well, eventually a bad thing's gonna happen.
0: That's that's a good comparison, yes.
1: So, you know, take that time.
0: Just a, a closing up here, sort of going back to what we started with with uh, with insurance. What 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 steps would a firm does a firm need to take along this this spectrum of steps of steps first to qualify for cybersecurity insurance, and then secondly to to lower their rates to a more manageable level. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and that's a really important question today. Um, you know, so first of all, take take. Take some time and take time at least 120 days before your next renewal to sit down with your insurance representative and make sure that you have the right kind of cybersecurity insurance for your company. There are a lot of legacy and existing policies out there that don't really cover the kinds of things that are exposures today. Uh, And so one of the unfortunate things is a company that gets hit with something and then finds out that the insurance they thought they had, they don't really have, right? The other reason that you want about 120 days is it might take you some time to put in place things like multi-factor authentication uh, in order to qualify for a better rate. Uh, I can tell you right now that one of the big things that has changed in the last 18 to 24 months is that MFA, multi-factor authentication, has become essentially required by all insurance carriers. Uh, When you go for your renewal, if you haven't yet, you will probably get asked if you have it or not. If you don't have it, your best case is that your rate is going to be higher. Your worst case is that they simply won't insure you. And we are seeing that happening, right? Um, So even if you don't have it and you don't have the time to put it in place, don't just leave that blank box or that box blank on the application and don't answer no. Have a plan in place for how you're going to put that Multi-factor uh, authentication in practice in your company, you're going to have to do it. It's the big thing today. Okay, um, filling out the form is probably the toughest thing that most small businesses are facing today. That the 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 cybersecurity insurance application went from a handful of questions to. 10 and 12 page applications uh, with a lot of technical questions. Frankly, sometimes a lot of questions that actually don't apply or don't make much sense, but it's what the insurance companies are asking and you, you need to know how to answer those questions. So again, one of the reasons for starting about 120 days out is you may need some help filling that out. Um, hopefully your insurance provider has somebody that's skilled in doing that, and you can sit down with them, but take that time for that session and fill that form out correctly. One of the best ways to reduce, to, to number one, be able to get it, but number two, to reduce your premium is accurately and thoroughly filling out that application. Now, I'm someone that absolutely detests paperwork. I can't stand to fill out forms. So I get it, um, but you still have to do it. I'm fortunate in that I've got, my director of operations is really good at filling those things out and he fills them out for all of our customers. And uh, so when I have to fill ours out, I give them to him. But, uh, you know, take the time to do it. And if you can't do it yourself or your insurance provider is not skilled at it, again, um, try and find an IT services provider who is. Uh, as I said, we we probably fill out. I bet we fill out two to three of those a month for our customers. Um, but it, it's absolutely vital to to fill it out correctly. Um, The two things that we talked about today, multi-factor authentication and backups, are going to be two of the big things they're going to be looking for. Um, They're going to be looking for, do you have a firewall? And again, for smaller businesses, this is often one of the things that we encounter, that they've signed up with some internet provider, they've got a cable modem, uh, or maybe even a a fiber connection, but they don't really have a firewall. They're depending on whatever security might be in the device from the internet service provider. That's not going to be enough, right? And again, it's going to take you a little bit of time to find a firewall and get somebody to put it in for you. So if your insurance renewal is coming up next week, that's not the time to be trying to figure out how to put a firewall in. But you're going to need a firewall. Okay, you're going to need multi-factor authentication. You're going to need good backups. Um, those kinds of things are a minimum these days. Uh, There's certainly other things that you can do. Uh, so, you know, having secure a security operations center, which you can often do as a service these days. Uh, Endpoint protection. And we used to call it antivirus. It's expanded beyond that, right? Now, if you if you have a bunch of computers and they don't have antivirus or what we call EDR, endpoint detection and response, the, the insurance company is going to flag that. It's a thing. If you send employees home and they're working off their home computers and you're not validating that they have EDR before they log in via VPN to your server, that's a problem. The insurance company is going to flag that. Uh, so increasingly, you know, making sure that you've taken the time ahead, well ahead of your renewal, to be able to go through and take care of these kinds of things is is what's going to make it easier for the renewal.
0: Great. I don't, I think that's a good, good way to end. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us.
1: Well, hey, thanks very much for having me in. And, uh, you know, engineering companies are are really kind of our largest group of customers. and we enjoy working with them because you know they they understand. They're engineers. they They think very logically about these things. So it tends to be easier for us to get engineering companies to understand the need for this stuff than certain other kinds of industries. So I always appreciate talking to, to folks in the industry because I, I feel like we can really accomplish something here and it, it's not just wasted time, you know? So thanks very much for having me on. And uh, if anybody has any questions, happy to, uh, to have a chat with them about it.
0: Hey, well, we've been, this has been Doug Miller. We've been talking to Doug Miller, who is uh, the CEO of the Brightworks Group in Indianapolis. And uh, you've been listening to the Engineering Influence Podcast presented by ACEC. Until next time.